Open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come here again and to share here at the University of Houston with the students. And Father, I pray that as I share part of the journey that you have taken me on, that it would be something that would encourage these young people to seek you more deeply. Father, I pray for each young person here. They are precious to you. You know their hearts. You know their struggles. You know their joys. You know their pains. And Father, I pray that you would minister to each one exactly where they are at to draw them in a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ that they would not be afraid to draw close to their Father in Heaven. Father, that they would take hold of Your Word and want to meditate on it to know You better. Father, that they would want to grow in You and seek You and seek Your name. Father, I pray that You would touch and impact each person here, hit them with the power of the Word of God and of the truth of the Gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, the love of Jesus Christ Take hold of them, I pray. Lord, I commit this time to you and and work even in spite of my weaknesses, Lord. Do a great work tonight, I pray. Father, a great work, and I commit this to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ, and ask you to lift up his name here. Amen. Do you have that pointer? Just the pointer. So that's built into here, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. So I I really appreciate the invitation here. I I've spoken at U of H a few times before. Like I said, it was about maybe four years ago in this room. You remember? Precisely. I don't remember. <laughs> who who was it that it was you? Okay. I don't remember exactly. But um I spoke about ten years ago as well. Uh, and this was more, I was invited by the religion department to speak. And I spoke, and I've never been invited back <laughs> by the religion department at the University of Houston. Although I did make a very good friend from the religion department at the University of Houston, who is now retired, but his name was, was Michael Wishabrod. And he was an uh, Orthodox Jewish man, and he, he and I ended up having lunch together several times, and he even... I attended his synagogue, and he came to my Sunday school class with his wife at my church. I mean, so we really built up a friendship. And in fact, I I called him not not too long ago, and we spoke. So, so I really have fond memories, particularly of of my times in ministry here, that have occurred in every case in this building. Okay, so thriving at college. What can I tell you about that? And I'm going to share with you then these topics. Um, my college journey, my graduate school journey. How many here are undergraduates? And graduates? And postdocs? Okay. And professors? Okay. So there, there'll be something for everyone then. My postdoctoral journey. I didn't know there were going to be professors here. I would have added some of that too, but I'll tell you some of those stories. Is there a prescription for thriving? We'll see in the scriptures, is there really a prescription for thriving? And I think there is. Uh, practical applications of the scriptures. 
And how God blesses us differently. So this is my journey. This is the journey of Jim Tour. God is, may have similar things for you. He may have different things. I don't know. But this is my journey. But in every case, there's blessings stored up in heaven for everyone. And some take-home message. And then we'll go into questions and answers. So here's my, my college journey. <clears throat> 1977, I graduated from high school, went to Syracuse University. And I was saved November 7th, 1977. So it was only a, a month and a half or so after I had hit campus, I was saved. I grew up in a Jewish home. Uh, I had never even known that there was a claim on the table that Jesus had died for my sins. I didn't even know that. You would think that, you know, growing up in New York City, I would know this type of thing. And I guess if I had listened to people, I would know this type of thing. But I didn't really even know that. And, and uh, so I really wasn't aware of much. And I met a young man, and, and he was doing his, his laundry, and I was doing my laundry, and he was <coughs> coloring some pictures. He was an art student, and he actually played on the Syracuse University football team. So we got to talking, and, and it turned out he lived on the same floor of the building that I lived on. It was a 20-story building, a uh, dormitory. And uh, we got, I asked him if he wanted to play football when he got done with school. He says, oh, no, no, I'm not good enough for that. But he said he wanted to go into lay ministry, and I didn't know what that meant. I said, lay ministry? He said, like a missionary. I said, missionary? You don't need missionaries today. There's no such thing as <laughs> missionaries anymore. <clears throat> and... Uh, and he, he said he'd like to give me an illustration of the gospel, and I didn't know what that meant. I thought he was going to draw some picture, because he was an art student. And so he came to my room uh, the next day or the day after he came by, and, and uh, he started sharing with me the gospel. And he opened up the scriptures, and I remember him having me read the verse that said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him, and I said, I've not sinned. I mean, can you imagine someone saying to you they, they've, they've never sinned? But that's how foreign this concept was to me. I was a very secular Jew, so I wasn't a good Jew. I'm sure if I was a good Jew and I knew the scriptures better. But in secular Judaism, there's not this conception of, of sin. In Christianity, there's this conception like every thought I have, I, you know, again, I've sinned again, and I... It's a very different sort of thing. I was, I was actually much freer as a Jew in many senses in that way. And I told him I hadn't sinned. And uh, so he opened up to Matthew 5, verse 28, and he had me read this. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I was 18 years old. <laughs> And I, it, was, it was as if I had been stabbed in my chest, really. It just hit me. And I looked at him, I said, is this what this man Jesus calls sin? And now you have to understand, I was a young man addicted to pornography at the age of 18. I had started getting into pornography at a very young age. And that was then fueled in a great way when I started working in a gas station on the highways at the, at the age of, of uh, 14. 
started working in a gas station on the highway, I told the owner that I was, the manager, I told him I was 16. And they didn't check paperwork back then. If I, if I said I was 16, he assumed I was 16. And, and so I was allowed to work there. And I would find magazines thrown away by the businessmen on their way home on Friday nights. I'd find them in the, in the trash cans. And there was no Internet back then. And you couldn't get magazines if you, if you were a kid unless you stole them. And even if you were an adult, you had to go into a seedy sort of shop to get them. But I had lots of them. And I became addicted. And it is, it is extremely addicting. And the pictures remained with me in my mind for years. It's really an insidious thing. And if you are, by the way, addicted to pornography, I'm not judging you at all. I'm just saying there is help. And I have on my website, if you go to jmtour.com or you just Google Jim Tour, there's on my website, a. if you go under personal topics, audio, and audio files, and, and you, there's a section called scriptural sexual ethics. And I will go through and show you how to have victory over pornography. It is as addicting as alcohol and it is as addicting as drugs to, to young men. And from what I'm understanding, many young women as well. And I go through it and I can really take you through this journey and help you to be delivered. And so I, I advise you to go through it. It's like a five or six part series. It takes three and a half hours to get through. It starts with part one. And you start with part one. You don't jump around. And, and you'll really get some freedom there. But this, this happened to me. This stuck with me. And even when he left the room, I kept thinking about this verse. And what happened was, after he had, had uh, departed, this is the verse that kept pushing me. And finally, um, on November 7, 1977, I was in my room all alone. And I, and I remember getting on my knees, and I don't know why I did. I had not seen other Christians do it, nor had I ever done this as a Jew. And I said, Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner. And he had, given, he had taken me through the, the, the bridge, the sinners on one side and God on the other, and this chasm, and only Christ can get us to God. And I prayed, and I said, Lord, would you please forgive me, because I am a sinner and come into my life. And it was as if a man just entered my room. It was as if a presence was there. And I remember to this day, it was as if this presence was there. And I all of a sudden started to feel this cleansing. And I felt clean like I had never felt before. I felt free. And of this birth, I was free. And I started weeping, weeping. And I opened my eyes to see this man, and there was nothing there. But I knew his presence was there. Something happened. That day, November 7th, 1977, room 1812, Lawrence and Dormitory. And um, I didn't tell anybody. And two weeks later, the young man who had shared with me looked at me and says, Jim, have you accepted the Lord? And I said, I think I have. How do you know? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. <laughs> Something really freed in my heart. And I became, uh, not exactly then, but not long after that, really excited about the Lord, especially when I joined a local church. And so in 1977, I started to participate in, with the Lord a little bit. And then in 1979... 
I joined a church in May of 79. And I got really excited about the Lord. So much so in August of that year, I entered a discipleship program, which was the pastor owned a few houses around campus, and he had some couple houses for guys and one house for the, for the women. And, and I joined this. And, and I said to him, he had asked me to join. I said, look, you know, I, I work really hard. I study hard. I can't, I can't be sidetracked by this stuff. And he quoted a verse to me from the scriptures. Those who honor me, I will honor. And so I went into that house, and that house had a lot of things to do. We had morning prayer meetings. We had discipleship classes. We had three nights a week. We had to have meals together. We did door-to-door and campus outreach. A lot of things. And I was really a serious student, and you'd think that this would have gotten in my way, and it really didn't. I realized that I could serve God, and if I... If I honored him, he would honor me. This was a tremendous lesson. And I I started this habit of meditating on the scriptures and reading the Bible every day. I would go to the chapel on campus every day and just fall on my knees and pray. That is a practice of going to the chapel on campus and praying daily. Is a practice that I have maintained to this day, today. I was on the cha- in the chapel on, on the campus at Rice and every university I've been to. And I went from Syracuse to Purdue to Wisconsin to Stanford to South Carolina to teach and then to Rice. And I've maintained that. That was my college journey, my graduate school journey, 1981. went to Purdue University. I became very active in a local church. In fact, it wasn't something willy-nilly for me. I had prayed, realizing the importance of the local church, <clears throat> knowing what it had done for me, I had prayed, Lord, when I go to Purdue, get me knit in with the right church. Knit me in with the right church. And there were, God really did. <clears throat> you know, I, I was looking through the school newspaper. They had sent a summer edition to me when I was at Syracuse and I had already been accepted and I was going to be going to Purdue. They sent me the summer edition. And I remember one ad stood out. Upper Room Christian Fellowship. Come fellowship with us. Come fellowship with us. And I had dropped off the rental car. I drove from Syracuse to Purdue. All my stuff was in the rental car. And, and I, I moved it into the graduate dorm. I dropped off my rental car and was walking back to campus. And it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday morning. I walked into one Christian center and I talked to a few people. I thought, this just isn't right. And I was walking back to campus and I noticed um, a sign right out front of a building that... Um, was right next to the graduate dorm, and it was Upper Room Christian Fellowship. And I went up there, and the people were very nice. It was a little bit different background than I was used to. It was a little bit different style of worship. And I, I went home and uh, uh, went back to my room, and really nice people. The next week, I still had no clarity, and I, I prayed the next Sunday morning. I said, Lord, I'll go back to that church. But unless you speak to me today, that that's really the place of the fellowship, I'm going to go to another place starting next week. And I opened my Bible and I started to read where I had left off the week before. And in my, por- in my Bible, and I, I read from Genesis to Revelation. When I'm done, I start again. And so I pick up reading where I left off the night before. And I've, I've continued this practice for over 30 years. And I was reading in... in, uh, in Jesus said, Jesus' disciples said to him, 
where should we have a pass- the Passover feast? And his disciples said to him, go and a man will show you an upper room. <laughs> and there had the Passover feast. And it, boom, the peace of God came in. This is the way the Lord speaks to me through the scriptures. He brings out exact words. And then the peace of God confirms that. It was a wonderful church home. And we were very active. And, and a, a year later, I got married to the, my wife, who I had met at Syracuse. And we were engaged. But my first year of engagement, I was in graduate school alone. And then I went back to Syracuse. We got married, brought her out with me. We were leading home groups. I had fellowship groups there in, in the graduate dorm. Uh, I was preaching in the church twice a year. I was, had an international student outreach, which I had learned in Syracuse and continued doing international student outreach. You know, this is when the Chinese were first coming to the United States. Very few of them, just visiting scholars had come, and I'd be ministering to them, and they'd give me cards, you know, that they'd pick up at the shop. Thank you for being a great priest. (laughs) Just relationships that, that I've even maintained to this day. I was married my first year of graduate school, and, and our first child was born in my third year of graduate school. So I was a busy guy. But I was active in the church, and I worked very hard in, in my, my schoolwork. But I went early in the morning, and I was home for dinner. I still did door-to-door outreach. I ran a door-to-door outreach group in the church. I had student prayer meetings in the dorm room uh, and in my apartment. So this is before I was married and then after I was married in the apartment. I led a Bible study class in the chemistry department in the glass shop. I never lost the practice of meditating on scriptures, and I, I do it to this day. I always have a pocket full of scriptures that I'm memorizing. You just stop me any time. Show me your scriptures. And if they're not in my pocket, so they must have fallen out that day, because they're supposed to be there. Um, this is what I do. And this was my life in graduate school. And I... And, it's something I look back upon with very fond memories. Graduate school wasn't easy. I, it wasn't always successful, but in the end, it was very successful. I mean, I had a lot of publications, and I worked with a famous guy, and, and I was able to go and do a postdoc and, and actually work with, with a famous guy at the University of Wisconsin. And then, and then he, again, we were active in a local church. We had a home group Bible study. I led a Bible study study class in the chemistry department there at the University of Wisconsin. Um, in 87 and 88, so my boss moved from Wisconsin to Stanford, and we followed it. We were active in a local church there, speaking there on occasions. We had a weekly home group. And again, I was only there for a year, and so students who think, oh, I'm only here for four years, and then after this I'll get plugged in. Big mistake. The Bible says Moses was faithful in all of God's household. Wherever he puts you, be faithful. If you're four years in one place, that's probably longer than you'll ever be in one place the rest of your life with our mobile societies the way they are. And so even though we were only here for one year and here for one year, we got actively plugged in very quickly. If you can't find a church in six weeks, the problem is yours. The problem is really yours. If you pray and ask God, you will find a church. And if you say, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable, well, make yourself feel comfortable. Start... Start becoming active and you'll feel more comfortable. If you say, well, I don't really feel a part, well, you become a part and you'll feel more like a part. When you start investing in something, there is ownership. If you don't have any money in the stock market, you don't care what's happening with the stock market. You never check it. If you put some money in some stocks, I'm telling you, you check in that thing every day. You invest in something and you, you, will, you will pay attention to it. Uh, again, I led a Bible study in the chemistry department at Stanford University. 
uh, I never lost this practice of scripture med- meditation. And before I started my postdoc, I prayed that I would have two papers in the Journal of the American Chemical Society and one paper in the Journal of Organic Chemistry, all sole authorship, only along with my d- advisor. So it would be my advisor and myself, and that's it. That's what I prayed. If you're in chemistry, Journal of American Chemical Society is a big deal, and it used to be a, even a bigger deal than it was. Now, you, you know, there's other journals that have come up to match that, but, but 25 years ago, that was only the big thing. That was, that was the big game in town. And this is exactly what I ended up having when I, when I left there. How can you pray beforehand what you're going to have? Soul authorship. I mean, how can you do that? I don't know. I just did it. I had no idea why I did this, but I prayed this. It's exactly what I left with. Is there a prescription for thriving? This is what I'm going to show you today. What do the scriptures say? Is there some prescription for thriving? Psalm 1 Verses 1 through 3 says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Look at that, he prospers. Now that bothers some people. Prosperity, and I'm not here prosperity, and I'm going to talk about this on the slide later on. Prosperity goes so much deeper than money. It is not money. If it's money, then the world is prospering because there's richer people of the world than there are of Christians. I mean, compare the bank accounts overall. It is something much richer than this of money. It is a relationship with God, with people, with family. He speaks of prospering. Look how specific this is. Look at this from a Jewish perspective, how specific this is. If you don't follow wicked stuff, and, it, and you don't go around complaining all the time, but if you delight in the law of the Lord, and in His law you meditate day and night, how specific could you be? You meditate in it day and night. Day and night. There's a meditation, a pattern of meditation. You want to meditate once a week, there's no guarantee of anything. You want to make the Word of God your meditation day and night, there's a promise here of prosperity. So much so that when everybody else is drying up, you will be bearing fruit. When everybody else is drying up. So come strong economy, weak economy, you're going to be thriving you're still going to be glowing because of God. Joshua 1.8 This book shall not depart from your mouth. Joshua 1.8 But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Again, look at this specifically what it says. It shall not depart from your mouth. How can you keep it from departing? Your, from, how can you have it so it's always in your mouth. You meditate on this and you're saying it again and again. But you shall meditate on it day and night. Again, day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. If you meditate on this thing, you start doing something against it. You know what happens? You go, nope. I can't do that. 
then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Is there a prescription for thriving? It seems so. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If we make the Word of God our meditation, what will happen? We'll have more wisdom than our enemies. We'll have more insight than all our teachers. And it doesn't say more insight than all your Bible teachers. It says than all your teachers. Who is instructing you? You can have more insight than them. According to this verse. There is a promise here. If you do not believe it, you know what I have to say to that? May God give me what He would have given you had you believed. I will take that extra portion. I really will. Let's not let it go to waste. I will take it. Because God gives a promise here. Will we take hold of it? Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe the Scriptures? This is what Paul asked the king. King Agrippa, he says, I know you do. Do you believe the Scriptures? Believe it. This is what it says. How much more explicit need God be? Again and again he says it. Here's some practical applications. Students in the home. So, we, we would have students in our home at times, and, and it would bother me. Because... They got really sloppy after a while. College students are inherently messy. They are not, they don't try to be messy. They're just, it's just there. It's something ingrained in them. And we had this little apartment, and we had this little daughter, and we used to invite folks in for a meal every week, and we'd have a meal, because we used food just like Jesus did, to bring them on in, and then we'd hit them with the gospel. And so we'd serve a meal, and we'd, and, and I noticed as these guys would be sitting on the couch, food rolling off their plates, and they're talking, they don't even know it. And one day, I, uh, um, my daughter, these guys would come walking in, and I remembered these guys came walking in out of the snow, and they didn't even wipe their feet. You know, the Asians take their shoes off. The Americans don't even wipe their feet. And they came walking in in the snow, without even having shaken their feet off or anything. And so these, these little snowballs are falling off their feet. And my little daughter is crawling around and picking up the snow and eating it. And then two days after the meeting, I find my daughter sitting on the couch, chewing on a chicken bone that she had found behind one of the pillows on the couch. And it bothered me. I said, you know, the trash in the place, the, it's a mess. Is it really worth it? Is it doing anything? And I was reading in the book of Proverbs and I read this verse one morning. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. It meant nothing to me. And I was just, and boom, my eyes kept getting drawn back, drawn back, drawn back. I said, Lord, you're speaking to me from this verse. What are you saying? Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And I knew then God was saying, you want to keep your little apartment clean? Don't have them in. But if you want to see the power of God in these young people's lives, 
you invite them in the apartment because much increase can come from the strength of the ox. And I said, Lord, from this day on, forever, my home is your home. This house is your house. We will have meetings. The house gets trashed if it's for your service. We don't have disco parties. We don't, have, we don't even have Tupperware parties. But if it's for the Lord's work, we have it. And I told my kids, you know, have the Bible studies in this home, in this house. I want God's blessing to come. The house of Obed-Edom was greatly blessed when the Ark of the Covenant ended up in his home. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gittite in Second Samuel chapter 6. It was there for three months. They reported to David, God is blessing. Everything in the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed. And David said, get that ark out of his house and bring it up here to my house. <laughs> the man knew. You set up your home as God's house. It will be blessed. You can keep your home all to yourself and be very comfortable and quiet. And it never gets messed up. If you open up your home, you say, well, I don't have a nice home. It doesn't need to be nice. I did it in my college dormitory room. I did it in my little apartment. We had a one-bedroom apartment. It was me and my wife and my child in a university housing apartment that had been built 40 years earlier than that. And it was a beautiful home. And many people got blessed in that house. We even had people get baptized in the bathtub. I mean, that house was used for the Lord's work. And I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't know where I'm going to get assigned in marriage student housing, but I'll tell you what I really need. I need that the apartment is on the end of the building, on the ground floor, with picnic tables in the back. And I had no idea that they even had this. I got on the ground floor, on the end of the building, with picnic tables in the back, and a whole park called Squirrel Park. And we used to just open up the window, take out the screen, and hand the food out (laughs) from the apartment, and onto the picnic tables, and we would have 70 people in the back for picnics. God provides. September 3rd, 1933, I was invited back to Purdue University to give a talk. I was an associate professor by that time. I started as an assistant professor in 1988. In three years, I got tenure. I had put a scripture verse on the top of every exam from the first exam I put on there as as an assistant professor. People tell me, oh, you you can do it now because they'll never touch you. I did it when I was an assistant professor. Started putting a verse. I figured if people could put, you know, a quote of John Lennon on the top, (laughs) I could put Jesus Christ or John the Baptist (laughs) on the top. And the religion department, you know, when they wanted to meet with me, they heard about this in the religion department, said, you know, you would never get tenure in our department. I said, I'm not in your department. I got tenure after three years. After, after four years, I was a, a full professor, and after five years, I had a chaired professorship, which means that there's a lot of fluff around. <laughs> and, and so I, at this time, I was, I was invited back to Purdue, and I, I, I was tenured at this point. But my Japanese professor there, he was a great man, a great teacher, but the Japanese way is you put people down and many people, therefore, don't make it. But the ones that survive, you know, they, they come out strong. And no matter what result I brought to the man, no matter how good I thought it was, he used to say, he would only, this is the best I could get. He said, pretty good for your level. <laughs> and this is what I had to go back to to speak on. And now I was speaking on my own stuff. 
I wondered, you know, what's going to be his response? And so I was in the in the in the hotel room at the Purdue Union that morning that I was going to be delivering the talk, and I always pray before I give a lecture. And I was in the in the room, and he, he, even before I give a lecture, a secular lecture or a lecture in my classes, I pray. And I pray. I said, Lord, just hit them with the power of God. Just do it. And you know, if, if you pray that the power of God goes forth, it goes forth. And the world doesn't know what this is. The believers, they recognize what it is, but the world doesn't recognize it. They just know something powerful hit me. And as I was praying, I started to read a verse, and it started to raise my faith. And I was reading in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and it says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And I read this verse. I said, Lord, you're raising my faith. You're really raising my faith here. Here I am getting intimidated because this Japanese professor is going to be there. But you're raising my faith. I said, Lord, I pray that this talk will be the best chemistry lecture ever in that department. The best ever. And I thought, you know, the department, I don't know, 75 years old or something. How will I know it's the best? You know, who's been there for 75 years to say, yeah, this was the best one? So, oh, I know. So, well, Lord, if it's really the best, I pray that my professor doesn't give me any of this stuff pretty good for your level. But he says that it was a super seminar. I wanted him to say it was super. Well, when I got done delivering that seminar, he was right there on the front row, and I knew God blessed, I knew God anointed, and the power of God went forth, and this little Japan, Japanese man, he stood up from the front row, he raised his hand, and he said, Supa! Supa! <laughs> Why would God do that? God is amazing. They went over to the second row, H.C. Brown was sitting there, and he won the Nobel Prize in, in around 1979. And I went, and I, he was in his 80s at the time, and he was sitting there, and I said, thank you for attending the seminar today. And I shook his hand, and he held on to my hand. He said, I want to tell you something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. And being a Nobel Prize winner, and knowing the way they speak, he held my hand, and he looked at me, and he says, I'm not saying it to be kind, I really mean it. <laughs> You know, God confirms things if we will but hear Him. You know, one day I was upset with a colleague. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. And I was upset with a colleague. I was an, I was an assistant professor. And this, this young man, was this gentleman, he was, he was hired a year after I was. We were in the same field. We weren't competing for the same tenure slot position. We each had our slots. And... He came into my office. He was hired a year after me. He came in one day, and, and it, a bit of a cocky guy, but he came in and he says, you know, I'm going to get tenure before you ever do. I mean, that's, that's kind of rude to say. That's like, that's like walking up to somebody and saying, I'm better looking than you are. <laughs> now, even if it's true, <laughs> by saying it, it means that inside you're uglier than the other person. You know, it's just not a right thing to say, even if, if it's factual. There's some factual things you just don't express. And uh, so 
what happened is God blessed my career so quickly, so fast, that I had a little metal student desk with a little rickety chair that hurt my back and one file cabinet and a telephone and a Macintosh computer that was great. It was a Mac SE with one megabyte of RAM. I thought, I was really humming when I got that computer. One meg of RAM. And, but that's all I had. Well, after, after four or five years, I had a secretary and a big thing and a big wooden desk and lots of file cabinets and much nicer computers and big grand things and lots of students working. And he was across the hall and he still had a metal desk. And he, not much was happening. And an undergrad came to my office one day. She said, you know, I really like you and everything. And he taught a great class. But that professor across the hall, he's all saying bad stuff about you. <laughs> and, you know, if you tell an undergraduate something, I mean, it just spreads like fire. It, re- <laughs> it really bothered me. And I went across the hall and I knocked on his door and I was really going to give it to him. I mean, what, saying, what are you doing? And he didn't answer because he wasn't in. And God got a hold of my heart. Because I had been meditating on a portion and memorizing this with my children. It was from Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. It's very specific what to do. It says, you are to love your enemies. You're to do good to them. Do good to those who hate you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that... that, um, The Germans hated the Jews, so they started to call them names. You would think that that would pacify their hatred. It didn't. It made their hatred worse. So they started to throw stones through the windows of their stores. You'd think that that would fulfill their hatred, but it made them hate them more. And so they started committing them to ghettos, and that didn't fulfill it. So they started putting them in camps. And that didn't fulfill it. So they started starving them to death and systematically killing them. And you would think that now they would, you know, this would fulfill their hatred. But it didn't. It made them hate them more. So what C.S. Lewis says is when we do a good act to somebody that we hate, it makes us like them more. And I've done this to people who have, you know, said bad stuff. I invite them to lunch. And I insist, you come to lunch. And after I've had lunch with them, I like them more. And they like me more. You see what I mean? You do a good act. This is why God says, do good to those who hate you. Because it will make you like each other more. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. So I said about when I would go to my noon prayers, that I would pray for him and his career. That God would start blessing him. In about a year and a half period, God blessed him so much. He got a big NIH grant. He started getting more students. His program started really humming. God really blessed him. And I was happy for him. I really was happy. But God changed my heart. There was all this junk in my heart before. Now my heart was changed. God started blessing his career so much that he got an offer from another university. He took the offer and he left. And I was delighted. (laughs) He was gone. And so God allows people to come into our lives as a test for us. And we want this cancer removed from our lives. And God says, sure, I will remove that cancer, but it's all wrapped around your heart. And it's going to cut your heart as I start removing this thing. This is what He calls us to do. 
This is where you see the practical application of the Scripture, sometimes by a precise word. You know, upper room Christian fellowship. And I have other precise words too. Sometimes by a thought that he drops in that is a specific application. Sometimes he takes the Scriptures and he raises our faith. Sometimes he tells us specifically what to do. This comes by meditation on the Scripture. God blesses us differently. I have a long portion here, but you're, you're all smart people, so we can read this together without you getting lost. Think about this. Hebrews 11, verse 32 through 38. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of, Sa- of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign, foreign armies to flight. So just think about that first half of this portion. Look at what these men did. The tremendous exploit of these men. Even though it was really a woman who really did it, and Barak just followed along. It's amazing how guys sometimes get the glory for what women really really perform. But um, even even though Deborah said, and a woman will get the glory, well, she did in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Barak seems to have been listed with the glory. But look what each one of them got something different. You know, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Escape, but look at this. They became mighty in war. You don't become mighty before the war starts. You become mighty in war. You know, when the battle, then, then God will make you mighty. God make me mighty, make me mighty. You know I mean? Well, wait till the battle, you'll be mighty. Um, they put foreign armies to flight. So God blessed all of these men with different things that they did. But now look, women received back their dead by resurrection. You know that women would pray. And they, you know, receive their child back by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might attain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I don't know what the blessing of God is going to be on your life. I don't guarantee that your, your career is going to go overflowing. All I know is you meditate on the scriptures, you will be blessed. What that blessing will entail, I don't know. Maybe that blessing will entail you, know, you sharing the gospel with somebody and they kill you. Well, then you will have been martyred for Christ. You have a great reward. You will have been blessed. And the world will say of you, there is a man, there is a woman of whom the world was not worthy. That's what God will say of you. You see what I mean? I don't want to give you the impression that you're all going to walk out millionaires or something. I don't know what God has for you. But in everything, you will be blessed. Because the Bible says, these men who lived, even in caves. One day my son, you know, he's learning stuff. He says, Dad, do you believe in cavemen? I said, yeah, let me show you a verse. Men lived in caves. I believe in cavemen. So, <laughs> God has something for us. He has something for us. And in fact, if you want greatness, for sure you will go through things like this. You know, I was reading this morning in a little devotional. I wasn't even going to share this, but I was reading this devotional by... by um, 
Charles Spurgeon. He says this amazing thing. Uh, he says it, he's quoting from this verse from Lamentations 3.27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. That is the verse. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Then he talks a little bit about this. And he says, the yoke of censure is an irksome one, but it prepares a man for future honor. He is not fit to be a leader who has not run the gauntlet of contempt. Praise intoxicates if it has not been preceded by abuse. Men who rise to eminence without a struggle usually fall into dishonor. The yoke of affliction and disappointment and excessive labor is by no means to be sought for, but when the Lord lays it on us in our youth, it frequently develops a character which glorifies God and blesses the church. Come, my soul, bow thy neck, take thy cross. It was good for thee when, when young. It, is, it will not harm thee now. For Jesus' sake, shoulder it cheerfully. You know, there is a, an, a, a difficulty that comes in every life. It doesn't mean we've lost blessing. The blessing is there. God prepares us for things greater. He does. There's difficulties in research. I went two years as a graduate student, two years, without a single good result. And you know, when you're not getting good results, you have to work much harder because your boss thinks you're not working. When you're getting lots of good results, you don't have to work as hard because whatever you do, you know, your boss thinks you're working because you're bringing all this, things, this stuff to him. You see what I mean? There are times we go through in our life that prepares us, that makes us greater. Here's the take-home message. This is, Moses shared this in Deuteronomy. This is in the end of Deuteronomy. The last thing Moses had shared with them all these years. What's the last thing he's going to leave with them? After sharing all this, writing all this, 40 years of ministry. What's he going to say? This is what he says. When he had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take your heart all the words with which I am warning you today which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. It is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. It may be an idle word for someone else. But for you, what I'm sharing with you tonight, this is your life. You have the choice. God gives us a free will. And He allows us to choose wrongly rather than forcing us to do, choose what is right because without freedom of choice, love itself would be impossible. You choose. You choose. But He says this, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. You choose. This is your life. Will you believe the Scriptures or not? And if you believe the Scriptures, which I know you do, you take these verses and you make them your meditation. You take the Word of God and you make it your daily meditation. I don't know what happens to somebody if they only do it once a week, but I know if you make it daily, that morning and night, all the day, that this Word is your meditation, I know you will be blessed because God said so. It is not an idle word for you. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. 
This is a promise for you and for your children. Anybody here have children? Okay. And there's a promise for your children. And one day, the rest of you, if the Lord opens the womb, you will also have children. There's a promise. You do this, and He will make your children mighty on earth. You make the Scriptures your delight, delight in His commandments. He will bless your children and make them mighty on this earth. And when I get done in the morning having my own devotions, and before I call the family down for family devotions in the morning, I have, there are four pictures on the wall, of four children. And each of these pictures was taken when each one of them was two years old. And I have it on the wall. And I say, Lord, I remember your promise to me that as I've made these commandments my delight, that you would make them mighty on this earth. Father, remember my children. You make this word your meditation. In summary, that is my college journey. Took you through my graduate school journey, a little bit of postdoctoral journey. There is a prescription for thriving. You meditate on the law of the Lord. You get involved. You serve. You serve God. Don't think that you're so busy that you can't serve. If you're so busy that you have no time to serve, you're too busy. All right? You make the Word of God your meditation. You'll see that you have time to serve. And God will bless the other time when you work. He'll bless it tremendously. There's practical applications of the Scriptures. God blesses each of us differently. I don't know the journey that He has for you. I don't know what He has for you. I have no idea, but it's going to be different than mine. But it's going to be blessed if you pick up this journey, what I've said. That's the take-home message. It is not an idle word for you. Let me pray for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the beauty of Your Word. How gracious is Your Word, Lord God. Father, I pray for these young people that You would speak to their hearts even now. I'm just going to take a moment of silence. And I want you to ask God to do this in your life. That you will make it a practice of Scripture meditation. So that you may see His blessing come through. Father, I pray for these young people that they would fulfill their commitments because I know that you will fulfill yours. Father, I pray for them, for endurance, for the strength to obey your word and to walk in that which they know is true and right, that their lives would be blessed and even the lives of their children after them. And I commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Okay.
Yeah, I usually take a portion that has, uh, where God is speaking something to me and I'll, and I'll do it. Or I take a portion that I feel that I need to apply to my life. Or because I memorize with my children. And so what we've done in our family is we have family devotions at 5.30 in the morning till 6. And at 6, I leave the house. And then I'm home by 5.30 or 6, usually 5.45, somewhere in there, for dinner. So I'm gone about 12 hours a day. But I start the family with devotions. I'm home for dinner. I'm there for homework and things like that. But we'll take portions. And, and for the little kids, when they were real little, all they had to, you know, when they could start to talk, I would say, the Lord is my, and they'd say, shepherd. You know, they'd, they'd just, you know I'd say a sentence, they'd fill in a word. But you'd be amazed at what a four-year-old can memorize. And so, you know, now, you know, there's, I only have one child left at home. Three have already moved out. And so it's now what we're doing. We're just finishing up some, I'm sorry, Proverbs, Proverbs 5. So we've got all of Proverbs 5. So here's the whole Proverbs, Proverbs 5. I made it, you know, printed out from the computer. It's got kind of worn out. But Proverbs 5, and this is the pitfalls of uh, immorality. Falling into adultery. I wanted my son to get this down in his heart. And I want to get this down in my heart. And so we go through this one. And I got, I got, uh, I got another one. This is this one from Deuteronomy that Moses, you know, when Moses had finished speaking all these words. You know, this is one I had memorized a while back, but I still keep it in my pocket for a while, I, even after we finished that one. I got some more verses here that I, was, I, I, I found myself judging people too much. Judging them too much. So I looked up a bunch of scriptures on judging and I memorized these. I mean, these are, these are tremendous. You know, because he, he, one of my sons, he got, he got, you know, he's getting into politics and complaining about this politician, that politician, and I thought, you know, I don't want to, you, you don't need to be into that. And, and, and so, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You know, this is, this, these, are, these are powerful. Uh, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So it's not even just, you know, your brother. It's your neighbor. You know, so so I, I, I feel I need something in my life and I, you know, start putting it in there. Another question. So what are the reactions that I get being a Christian and being open about it in, yeah. in the scientific world? Generally, what I have seen is if you talk up a little about the Lord, people will challenge you. you know, but if you talk a lot about the Lord, they think you're crazy and they stay away. If you talk a lot about the Lord, they're afraid of you and they don't trouble you much. I mean, I, I never get people coming into my office and challenging me because I'll go toe-to-toe with them. And they just stay away from me. And, and so this is what I've found. If you speak up a little, uh, they're going to come and challenge you. But if you speak up a lot, 
most of the time they leave you alone. Once in a while in groups, they might challenge you, they might challenge something, but it's all a bunch of hot air. Uh, these things are easily diffused, and you just, you know, you can love them and talk to them. And, and uh, you know, I end up inviting them to lunch and saying, okay, t- t- tell, me, tell me what your problem is. Tell me what your problem is with me, and let's just talk about this. And they end up being my friends. So if I get them one-on-one at lunch, generally that works out better. But if you want to talk a little bit about the Lord, people are going to challenge you. You talk a lot about the Lord, and they get afraid of you, and they just, they just leave you alone. Yes. Okay, I don't use this devotional for my family. Yeah, well, this actually was my wife's, and I picked it up and I read it this morning. Uh, but I, I read this a lot. This is Charles Spurgeon. He's great. He's one of my favorite writers. But what I do with my family is I is I use Hurlbut's story of the Bible. H u r l b u t apostrophe s. Hurlbut's story of the Bible, H-U-R-L, Hurl, B-U-T, apostrophe S, Hurlbut's story of the Bible, and that's what I use. And the reason I use that is that was it was written in the 1920s, around the 1920s, and it was, and you can still get the original version. Don't get the kids' version. Get the real version, and you can get it for like ten bucks from Amazon in paperback. I have an old leather one that's just fallen apart. But the reason is you read that, it tracks the Bible from beginning to end. You start in Genesis and it goes to Revelation. But, you know, it takes out the genealogies and things. So it's it's easy reading with the kids. It's got a picture on every page. There's a picture. And it's not a New Age picture. It's usually some classical painting or some photograph from Jerusalem. And so the little kids, you know, they always want to look at the picture. And, and, um, He tells the story, and it tracks with with the Bible, and then he drops in little concepts that adults have never thought of. Oh, I never thought of that. And he does a tremendous job. It's by Jesse Lyman Hurlbut. And so little kids like it, adults like it, and you can read this thing. So that's what I read. So what we do as a family, the first we get down there, and you know I wake them up, and, and they're just normal kids. And they're like, well, what's going on? Why are you waking me up? I, oh, your whole life has been waking up for family devotions. And you wonder, I can't imagine why I'm waking you up this morning. So that we play, they play this game and they come down and, and um, we first go over our scripture verses, what we're memorizing, and we each recite how far we've gotten. And if somebody's not keeping up, we kind of push each other along. And then, and then I read a portion out of the Hurlbut story of the Bible. And we get down on our knees and we pray for each other. And we don't make it longer than 30 minutes, usually 25 minutes. That's it. You, because, I mean, even, even adult students lose attention after 30 minutes. You're gone. I mean, I know i got 30 minutes in class. And the rest of that, I mean, everybody's mind is <laughs> off somewhere else or asleep. So we keep it to that. And, uh, uh, but that's what we use. Here, we wanted to um, bless Dr. Tor by praying for you. Yes, so we I wanted to ask for how we can 